Welcome to the latest Spotlight on IRT podcast, where our experts talk about best practices in the field of clinical development and innovations to improve today's clinical trials. This podcast is brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies, the leader in interactive response technology. For more information, visit www.almacgroup.com. And now, here's your host, Matt Lowry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spotlight on IRT podcast. I'm Matt Lowry, and I want to share a story. I'm the quality assurance manager for Almac Clinical Technologies, and I followed the linear waterfall IQOQPQ, whatever you want to call it, school of thought for quite a while. A few years ago, some of our project managers approached me about using an updated methodology called Agile. And at the time, I gave it a hard no, shut the conversation down immediately. I had just come back from a training where I heard an industry expert answer a question about Agile, and his words were, well, it's not fit for a regulated environment, and it never will be accepted. Luckily, that project manager is absolutely ferocious. It's a quality I truly appreciate. She simply asked me, why? Where does it say that? And accepting the challenge, I went and took a look. After looking, I couldn't actually find an answer. As a matter of fact, I found evidence supporting it. I went back to that industry expert to ask what his reference was for not utilizing agile methodology. The only reference he could actually provide me was he had 25 years of experience in CSV. Unfortunately, that isn't a qualifying reason. We spent nearly a year developing the process, tool sets, and methodology to utilize agile in software development. We then went to a few of our partners. We put everything on the table with the specific request for them to dismantle it. We worked through that, we went back, and we ended up implementing it. I wanted to take some time today to reach out to a few of our new products and services project managers to discuss agile methodology and agile project management. Deb Candebo and Gary Datman have been leading this charge for us here at Almac, and I want to welcome them and their wealth of knowledge. So, Deb, Gary, let's talk about what Agile really is. How would you go about defining that? I would say that it's a set of guidelines and that there are rituals that you must follow. And it's especially important to follow the Agile methodology to the book when you're first starting. And then you can start to customize your uh, implementation. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, I think it values the collaboration. There's frequent inspections and quick adaption um, to change. And that's leading to like self-organizing and self-managing highly motivated teams, um, just to add to that. Yeah, and a little bit more. It also, at least in a regulated environment as we are at ALMAC, uh, it lends itself to greater traceability, visibility, transparency, and that all really comes in because uh, in a highly regulated industry, safety is key, and the executives are high risk, very highly risk adverse. And so it lends itself to the visibility, transparency, and traceability attributes, as I said, to endorse the safety concerns, and then to also uh, quickly uh, identify project risk. So when you're talking about that, what really starts to bring success to an agile team? I think success is having a well-groomed backlog that's 
paramount. What do you mean to by well-groomed backlog? Uh, a backlog where the requirements, the business requirements, are fully understood, and they're able to be presented to the development and test teams, the, the teams. Okay. And um, again, the teams are self-managing, self-organized. They're empowered teams. And that's probably one of the hardest things that um, a manager or a management team can allow. But when you say self-organizing and self-managing, I think that's misunderstood sometimes. Uh, the team is self-organizing and self-managing with the work that they are committed to. It's not that, you know, they, they manage themselves. They manage the work that they're committed to. So essentially you're letting the team really dictate how they're going to get it done. Mm -hmm. We hire smart people for a reason. Yes. Right on, right on point there. And um, this kind of takes us to something that I like to talk about, that uh, failure is part of success. When I first came to ALMAC and, um, you know, worked with the team to prove that Agile could work in a regulated environment, the hardest thing for me to do was to let the team fail because I, I thought it would look bad on me as well. It's, you know, it's just a hard thing to do. But I would, I would coach the team and say, you know, from my experience, this is what I would try. Sometimes the team said, no, Deb, that's not what we want to try. And so, you know, that's it. You have to give them the rein to be able to go out and, and do things the way they want to do it. And sometimes it's wildly successful and sometimes it's not. But then you find that, find that out in retrospectives. You know, I'm, I'm trying to tie all of this together with the guidelines and the rituals that, that I talked about earlier. So when we start talking about failure, though, with Agile, if I'm understanding correctly, you're going to know you're failing quicker. It's not the equivalent of where in a waterfall methodology that a lot of pharma companies are still used to, where you have to wait until development is done or testing is done to know something's not working. You're going to know now much sooner that something's not working. Is that? Exactly. To Gary's point about the adapting and the inspection. Absolutely. Our, our showcases. There we go again with another one of those rituals. All right. So how do you start breaking down then those functions and those requirements when we're talking about an IRT? Because an IRT can be really complex. It can have a lot of complicated requirements, mm -hmm. a lot of things that you're building out, very wide scope for everything it needs to do. How do you start to really break down what that looks like for those teams? Well, we start feature by feature. Okay. We have BAs and we don't do user stories. We have use cases. Okay. Um, Kind of similar. So a feature being the highest level, use case then being? The second tier. Okay. And the yeah. requirements being the third tier. Yeah. And that's what our BAs bring to the teams. And these um, features, use cases, have also been approved by our architects. We have architects that we work with for each feature, that the BAs actually work with for each feature. And uh, so they're architect approved. When they're brought to the teams, they're ready to be estimated. And the team is ready to start working on it because we really iterate on development and test. Are there projects then that lend themselves to a waterfall methodology moreover than an agile? Are I think there, Gary there, can speak more to that. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So um, my team actually handles a, a lot of those types of projects, right? So we have longer duration type of projects. It doesn't really fit into the consortium mold of software development, et cetera. 
could be rolling out a new software or whatnot. However, what we've learned through the course of the years here is that we've been able to adopt some of the agile principles and standards and put it into like a waterfall model. So it's sort of a hybrid of, of the two, and it's been pretty successful. In fact, last year uh, we ran a project with the marketing and business development team, and I used sort of those guidelines to compartmentalize the work and iterate the delivery of, of how that project was coming along. And because the duration of the project was so short, it helped us be more successful in, in bringing that across the threshold. So that would be one example that we did use, sort of the two together. Now, do we do some waterfall projects? Yes. You know, we, we have some projects that are straight wood, uh, waterfall met, met methodology. However, um, again, what we've learned is bringing some of those agile principles and guidelines in there has really helped us along. Yeah, I, um, I actually kind of do a lot of ex external professional development or, you know, and, and observe webinars and um, active in the local uh, agile community. And um, a, a lot of now what's being discussed is the hybrid model. And a lot of people think that, you know, people have been doing project management for a number of years now. It started with the nuclear industry. And that was back in the late 60s or, or so. Um, and we've learned a lot. And the, the, the point about it is, is that people have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. And so whatever your experience, your knowledge, your background, you draw from all of that that you have. You don't just go by the book, as I was saying earlier, and say, we're going to follow a scrum methodology. There is a time and place for that. But as you mature in your methodology, you really need to use everything that you've got. Whatever works, as, as Gary was saying, for particular projects. It's another tool in the toolbox. Yep. Awesome. So what about the team makeup? I want to circle back around to that because I heard, you know, we, we talked, we have architects and you have BAs, business analysts. What does a typical agile team makeup look like for when you're talking about an IRT project? What's the size? Who are the key players? And, you know, what are the, the roles here? Okay. Um, well, seven to nine people, an ideal agile team, and I and that has proved out. I mean, that's what's written, and that's what's worked for me. Um, we have a TM, a technical manager, a BA, business analyst. Of course, we have our product owner, and the scrum master, and uh, developers and testers. Usually at Almac, we have a couple of developers, sometimes uh, two or three developers, and a couple of testers. Um, when I first came to Almac. I realized that it was important for me to form partnerships with both the TM and the product owner. Um, the, the developers weren't really interested in any of the rituals, any of the meetings that needed to occur. But once they saw the TM jump on board, then they were more apt to go along. And then they found value. They actually realized that there was value in what we were doing. So that, um, you know, you, you have to look and see. I, I, it's a little bit different for every team, but for at Almac, if the TM and the product owner are on board with the Scrum Master, the team can pretty much get up to speed pretty quickly and uh, mature. And maybe we can talk about the maturity a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we were uh, engaged with a consultant that brought the Agile Health Radar to Almac, and you can go out there and Google it, and uh, it is a methodology, um, and it. 
helped us to mature our teams. It is typical of a, a retros retrospective and uh, identifies the strengths and the weaknesses in the team. So it helped us. That's great. Uh, how about the Scrum Master's role? This, you know, they're the, the project manager for the Agile team. How does that differ or how is it the same from that traditional PM role that so many people are acquainted with? Well, the command and control is not there that was in the traditional PM uh, role. It's more of a servant leadership. And by that, I mean the Scrum Master is responsible for doing everything that they need to do to ensure the team's success, removing obstacles, um, escalating. I mean, I call myself an agile PM because I think the PM skill set is important for a scrum master to have. You know, in the, in the PMBOK, you'll find those concepts that all PMs need. But it's a little bit of a change in mindset where it's not just the PM that is responsible for getting this project completed on time and within budget. It's actually the team that's responsible, as I said earlier, with the team being self-organizing, self-managing. So really holding the team accountable for what they're doing. Exactly. And does that come back then to that idea that you talked about earlier, the team really accepting that work and understanding it when they first come up with the features and the use cases? and It's the commitment for the iteration. That's what really has the team accountable. And they take it seriously. And when we do our retrospectives, um, it's, it's really not finger-pointing. It's not like the traditional lessons learned, you know, and this wasn't done and that wasn't done. You, you talk about it in a more relaxed and understanding way of understanding the entire um, problem and then kind of coming up with a solution for that and what we need to do next time. You know, how are we going to avoid this? How are we going to grow and be better and improve? And that's what, of course, that's what it's all about. Yeah, because there's three parts to that, right? So um, what worked, what didn't work, and what needs to be improved. So that's really what the team concentrates on within the retrospective itself. So I think that gives everybody a voice from the team, right? It allows them to say, well, on my side, this worked great. And it may not have worked so good on the development side. So they may come to a happy medium there and say, you know what, maybe this is something we like to improve next time. So it helped the testers, but it didn't help the developers. Let's see how we can make the best of both worlds here. It's the, the, the idea of that dictatorship away of you're going to do it this way and this way, really letting right. the team determine their path forward. Mm -hmm. Sort of going back to the initial statement of self-managing, right? So, I mean, this is, this is empowering the teams. So one of the things that... I've heard in my career, and, and I want to ask about this, is we often hear, well, Agile is not fit for a regular environment because you could have a whole bunch of cowboys doing their own thing. And how does that, how do, you, how do you combat that? How do you combat that idea that folks might have that, you know what, it's, it's the Wild West? Because it doesn't seem like it is. Well, Scrum in a regulated environment you have two models or two main models. One is prescriptive and one is descriptive. With prescriptive, the regulation defines what must be done and how to do it. And with descriptive, the regulations define what must be done, but it leaves it up to the organization to identify 
how it's going to be done. And I think, Matt, you probably can identify with, with that. Um, you know, we partnered many years ago with QA, and we actually decided, I think we made a decision as, as, a, as an ALMAC team, that we would follow descriptive and that that was okay. Absolutely. So I, I think that, you know, again, in the regulated environment, as I said earlier, that visibility, transparency, and uh, traceability really just, you know, enhances the safety concerns and it endorses, you know, quick identification of risk. And that, that actually, I want to talk about that. So quality involvement. Uh, when this whole crazy idea of let's do this agile thing first came up, quality was involved. And developing the processes, looking at what was going on, making sure everything was going to work and keep in compliance. But when I talk about quality, when anyone in this industry talks about quality with a capital Q, we're talking more about you know, the involvement overall, what's going on. So with a project, what is quality's involvement? Are they part of that team? And how often are they involved? Or is this more of a waterfall where the work is done and then they review? I think it's a consortment of the two. So um, they are informed up front about what the project is or what actually the release is going to entail. Um, and that comes into my uh, pur purview. Um, and that also falls into the lines of operational readiness. Um, and that's really working with the business leads to prepare for the release itself. So the hands off to the business, there's production team, sales, QA, et cetera. Um, and there's a QA certification that takes place in the end. So that really completes the release and provides the green light for the go live. But I think to answer your question, um, you know, it's really partnering with QA as early as you can to give them uh, an idea of what the release is going to entail. And then going through all the, the different uh, parts for the OR plan itself bringing the OR team together, and I think I work with probably about six separate departments in that aspect. All right, so when we're talking about that then, and this idea that we've accepted these requirements, are there deliverables? Are there things that someone can tangibly get and say, I have this now? In a waterfall methodology, you would move forward and say, okay, we've gathered our requirements. Here are my requirements. We've done all our dev work. Here's all my dev deliverables. Are there the same things in, from an agile world? Well, we continue to iterate on our requirements, okay? They're as good as they can get working with the business analyst and the architect. When they're brought to the team, there may still be some design that needs to be thought through. Uh, and so then the team, uh, the developers and the testers, would work maybe a little bit more with the architect. It just depends. Or maybe they can work their own design out, present it to the architect to get their approval. So... When I said earlier that we, we iterate on development and test, that's primarily what we iterate on. But we do, you know, it's not like you have a requirements document and it's like, here team, that's it. And the BA walks away. The BA, as I said earlier, is a part of the team and meets every week with the teams. So as they're meeting and you have your teams creating and iterating, I guess a, a great way to put it would be if you're going to build a house, you don't have to know what color you're going to paint the walls in the kitchen before you start building. Exactly. So we can start putting that house together. We can start building an IRT. Mm -hmm. Now, as the IRT is being built, we all know requirements change. No, no 
piece of IRT software ever really gets archived on version 0 or version 1. Um, if you're building that system up and those requirements are coming through, it seems like the client may actually have even more say, more control over those requirements because they can still manage those and modify those as they see fit if something changes. That's very true. And we do do showcases after each iteration. So how does a showcase typically work at the end of an iteration? Um, do you pull everyone together and go through the functionality? Exactly. The functionality that was delivered for that iteration. Okay. Okay. And again, it gets back to Gary's point about adapting and inspecting. That's where the most of, the most of that is done. And um, yeah, we don't have our clients a part of our team every single week. There's mm -hmm. certainly a, 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 we can invite them and, and they can attend. It's not that we don't want them to attend. But um, at the end of the iteration, when we have our showcases, we definitely have them there and we get their approval. So let's talk about operational readiness because I've heard that term come up a couple times with the showcase. Can you explain to everyone who's listening what we mean when we say operational readiness? That's really to make sure that you know, the release itself is ready to be operational with the business. So there's things that could be adjusted, SOPs, work instructions. There's training involved as well in there. But, you know, probably uh, the big nut in that whole deal would be the requirements that we also work on as well. You know, there is two sets of requirements that the company keeps. So we have the requirements that we uh, work on within, that the team iterates on and develops, and then we have the client URS itself. Um, so that's one of the big uh, pieces of the OR uh, release planning and pulling that all together is... Uh, so why two sets? That's a good question. So I think, you know, the, the, the business has decided or had decided uh, a, a while back that this was best suited for our clients if they were able to break out the requirements in a way that the client would be able to interpret them a little bit easier than how they're put together for development purposes is my understanding as to why. So there's a difference between the technical requirements and the business requirements for the client. So that's really the, the, the reasoning why they, they do that. Who's typically involved then in that operational readiness plan? So I think I said there's probably about six departments involved. There's QA, there's Prod IT, there's CPS. So configuration. So your IT group, your project services. IT, yeah. So I mean, you know, the the, the really start starting point of a lot of this is pulling together the change implementation plan. So once we present this to CAB, then there may be other departments that. So want. CAB, your change architecture board. Correct. Okay. You know, and we'll put together what, what they call a SIP, and that's a change implementation plan. Um, and that kind of delineates uh, everything that's involved within the release itself. So, and then what, what we do is script out within that uh, plan um, the OR piece uh, and what departments will be involved within the OR itself, the operational readiness itself. So that's kind of a short way, a short span to say it. Um, you know, I, I, I took a look at the plan, and there's probably about 18 critical steps within the operational readiness plan that we work on. Um, and each one is stockpiled dependent upon each, each other. So if one isn't completed, then, you know, we, we, you know, that could hold up the whole plan. The long and short of it is 
just making sure the business is prepared for the, the, the release that's coming out itself. So there's a communication around that as well. So speaking of the business, what are the benefits to the business to move to an agile methodology? Well, as you were saying earlier, uh, we review the requirements before they're accepted into an iteration. So if we have the business representative there in that meeting, uh, if they see requirements that aren't exactly what they think they're going to be needing for and accepting, uh, we can work through it as a team and change those. And also, again, the, the showcases. Uh, not every showcase goes perfectly. Uh, at the end of a showcase, the business or the SME or you know whoever we happen to have in the room um, for that particular showcase may not like something that they see or think that they're getting something a little different than what they're that what was delivered and at that point in time we can change so the business gets more of what they're looking to get as opposed to the dev and test team working on something and then delivering it and then them have the business say no that isn't exactly what we wanted so we're seeing almost a, a, a demo up front more quickly of what's going to happen yeah, some people call showcases demos as well. So the terms are used interchangeably. All right. What about timelines? Is there a benefit to the timeline being reduced using this methodology? There's one of the things that I wanted to mention, and I didn't even mention it in this session yet, was collaboration. There's a lot, we're highly collaborative. Uh, we especially like Slack, and we have various Slack channels, and you know, you'll you'll go out. It's really a nice tool because you'll be able to go out and read everything that's going on, even from a PM perspective, if you're not in the middle of all the dev and test questions. And um, I've heard the term velocity used in the past. That's that's exactly where I was going next. Thanks. Usually, if you have a new team or a couple of team members are swapped out, you can, from experience, what I see is by about the third iteration, you usually are able to. Um, to identify a team velocity. And once you identify a team velocity, they have already estimated all of the use cases, so you'll be able to do a quick calculation to see when the deliverable will be completed. And so that's really dependent on the team estimating their... Use cases. Use cases correctly. Yes. And we use the Fibonacci scale, which is recommended in Scrum. So the team gets good at identifying what is a three and what is a five and what's an eight, you know, the, the amount of work in that particular use case. We do estimate at the use case level, not at the requirements level. And it's a combination of dev and test because you'll be surprised in some instances, um, the dev effort is very minimal and the test effort is just huge. It could be. And that's the actual developers and testers. It's not done by a central scheduling group or anyone else to estimate that. We're actually, you're reaching out to the team members who are going to be doing the work to say, how long do you think this is going to be? Yes, we do that primarily in an iteration zero. Okay. We will point estimate all of the use cases, the scope that we have. And then before each iteration starts in our iteration planning, we'll look at that again and ensure that we feel confident about the point estimate. Because you keep learning, you know, again, iterative, you keep learning. The, the risk is, is lessened, the complexity is lessened as you move through. All right, and so there's, there's a little bit less. Um, Delivery-wise, then, Gary, what do we look at for delivery risk? Is there a way to measure that or see some benefits in reducing that? 
So we look at three areas. Uh, one is the scope status, the second would be the resource status, and then finally the delivery status itself. The delivery being, uh, you know, has everything been fully uh, developed, tested, and then put through the regression testing itself. Um, and we monitor a lot of this, at least from a team level, by the burndown also. So we, we do have some charting that's available based upon stored points and estimating that the team has provided uh, and making sure that, you know, um, all the use cases are being burned down accordingly uh, within the time frame that the team has set for their delivery plan. So that first one that you talked about, the, the scope, mm -hmm. what's included in that? That could be, you know, that's that's really what the project entails itself, right? So, um, and the, the reason why we monitor this is because if we're doing a showcase, anything could change within scope. So we want to have that scope set so we falls within that timeline itself. And I know that kind of becomes waterfallish in, in, in a way, but a lot of these, uh, at least timelines that, that we have, are business dependent. So whether there's a client that's coming up that needs this certain uh, feature or functionality. Um, so we want to make sure that we keep the scope intact on what originally was going to be delivered. Yeah, because you still need to manage the project. There is that servant leadership that you offer, but you have to meet your timelines. You have to understand where the project is, monitor the project as it moves forward with the burn down and the tasking that we do. Everything's about remaining, whatever's remaining, the work remaining. That's something that's a little bit different than the traditional. Because what you would do with your traditional uh, project management would be percentage complete. This is not percentage complete. It's what, what is the work remaining? That's the purpose of a burn down. So when we talk about that servant leadership then and percentage remaining, what happens when you finish early? If, if you have... 10% remaining, and you're three weeks ahead of schedule. Perfect world, I know. But mm -hmm. what happens? Do you accept more? Absolutely. Keep on working. And that gets into a little bit of, of Kanban as well. Um, you just keep pulling the work. You pull the work from the backlog. And as we were talking about earlier about grooming the backlog, we have use cases and requirements that are ready to go ready to be accepted. We've already talked about them uh, early on, and if there are any questions, again, like I said, we're highly collaborative, and we just pull in the people that we need. The developer may need the BA to uh, clarify something, and that happens on the fly, and we're going forward. So Kanban being another methodology, okay. mm -hmm. or you know, more different type. In this backlog, we just you pull from it and you go, okay, well, we're ahead, so let's pull the next highest priority item that we can work on. Right. Kanban uh, is, a, is another agile methodology like Scrum is, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of organizations are using a combination of Scrum and Kanban now. You don't want the teams to stop. They're working on their velocity, and, and if they can improve that, all the better. And they just, it's a pull methodology as opposed to a push methodology. With Scrum, the team commits to a body of work. But with Kanban, they just keep pulling from a backlog. So what types of systems or tools do you find are best employed when you're working in this role? Well, as, as we mentioned earlier, the burn down and then the tasking, because after we have our iteration planning, the team will go out and 
task on our scrum board. And when we have our stand-ups, which we haven't talked about yet, I mentioned those. When we have our stand-ups, we look at the task board and I understand from the team members uh, how they're progressing. And, if, and, and that's how we can measure whether or not we're actually going to make our iteration deliverable. So let's talk burn down. That's a measurement of work remaining over yes. time. Absolutely. The work that's been completed and what you really look at is the work remaining because you want to know, am I going to deliver what I said I was going to deliver, what I committed to in that iteration? And tasking is that idea of putting those level of efforts and those hours that folks need to spend on each of those activities. Exactly. And with the tasking, we have our estimate, we have our remaining hours, and then we have our completed, which is, of course, the actual. So people don't usually get this in the beginning when they're starting with an agile implementation. But if you estimate 30 hours for a task, and well, that's, that's kind of high. If you estimate, let's say, six hours for a task, and then you find out that that task is actually going to take you 10 hours, you increase the remaining by four. People don't think about increasing the remaining. They always think about decreasing the remaining. And I should say that a task should really not be much more than six to eight hours, maybe 12 at the max, because you want to see progress with every stand-up. So every day you want to see progress on that task. And stand-up meetings. We've talked about it a bunch of times. Can you clarify for everyone? Is it just a quick little meeting? How's that function? It should be a quick meeting. Remember, you have a small team, and the people that are reporting out are really the ones that are doing the work. So you have the BA in, in the stand-up, and you have the developers, the testers, the scrum master, the TM, the technical manager. But it's the people that really have tasks on the board that are doing the work that are contributing to the deliverable that talk. It's a 15-minute, shouldn't be any longer. Uh, it's meant to be uh, meant to enhance collaboration. So if there's some dialogue that needs to happen, uh, that can happen offline with a couple of people who need to talk about it. But the point is brought up in the meeting, and it's identified by the couple of team members that need to talk about it, and then they take it offline. So coming from the pharmaceutical world where an hour meeting with 20 people is sometimes a, a standard item, this is kind of a, a real big departure from that. This is moving into a quick 15-minute. Is there an agenda? Like I said, we bring up the task board, and everybody just starts to talk about the tasks that they're currently working on. We find out where there are obstacles, where things are going smoothly. It's, uh, it's very quick, but it's meant to enhance collaboration. And so then if something does need to be discussed further, it's taken offline with just the really the, the real relevant core. people. Yep, the core people. Exactly. So you're saving everybody some time in meetings. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we tend to lose focus that an hour-long meeting with 10 people can get quite expensive. Absolutely. And, I mean, in my experience, I'd say uh, the majority of my stand-ups stick to the 15-minute uh, max. Right. What about failure? You know, you said you, you, you don't know you succeed till you fail. But where do you see teams really failing when implementing Agile? Well, a couple of points of failure. If you have a poorly groomed backlog, we've talked about how important the backlog is. Who should be responsible for that grooming in that backlog? Is that the team or is that the product owner? So 
I'm assuming that's the one the person who has the vision for where that product should be going. That's that's a good point. Yeah, it's the um, the product owner is the person that brings the scope, the deliverable to the team. Uh, the business analyst is primary in the in grooming the product backlog, but it's the team that really grooms the product backlog. The business analyst is responsible for bringing that to the team. So you need to have a uh, really good, uh, good amount of grooming on the backlog. Um, another point of failure is traditional management style continues if you're doing an agile implementation. You really need to think a little differently about the self-management and the self-organizing and also self-awareness, the ability to influence versus direct and the control piece of it, as I said in the traditional. Forgetting Agile Scrum as a set of guidelines, you have to do what works for you. You can't throw everything away. <laughs> but there comes a time when the team is more mature that they can start to think more introspective about what really works for them and what isn't working and try it. Try it for an iteration and then revisit it in your next retrospective and you know, make, make changes accordingly. The other thing I wanted to mention too is this whole idea of the traditional management style. Recently, I've heard more about adaptive management and uh, an agile manager, not an agile project manager, but just agile management. And again, it's that culture, it's that mindset of the transparency, the visibility, the collaboration, these things are key. And that's usually a difficult implementation when you're looking to transform your organization to an agile one. Management needs training on what that means as well. Gary, how about you? So I think most of the challenges, at least from the operational readiness standpoint and preparation for the release is the QA process compliance review. And that's where, you know, everything has to fit into the areas of our SOPs and work instructions. Um, so it's, you know, everyone's flying through the delivery and, and whatnot, and now we have to clean up some of the stuff on the back end to make sure that we're able to obtain the QA certification in, in a timely manner. So that would be one of the areas of failure that I, I see, at least from, from my end, and We've done a good job over the years in getting that prepared and more cleaned up. You know, we have some queries that we run and and uh, to double check all that information within uh, TFS that we do use. Microsoft Team Foundation Server. Correct. Um, that, you know, is the keepsake for all that information that gets pumped out in the end for quality assurance. All right. And so, Deb, Gary, if we had someone listening who wanted to start looking to implement some agile methodologies themselves. What would be your biggest point of advice to tell them to make it successful? What makes this successful? I would first point them in the direction of Mountain Goat uh, of website and Mike Cohen, really a, a, a great resource to understand what agile is and how to get started. And I also think that, again, it comes down to the adaptive or servant leadership and it fosters trust with, amongst employees by holding them accountable and showing appreciation, sharing power, and listening without judging. It's important that management is also a part of your transformation to Agile. 
And that's, that's what they need to think about and be educated in. Have you found that the Agile methodology lends itself to actually a boost in employee morale? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we were talking earlier about the, the Agile health radar and maturity. One of the uh, outputs is, is the team happy? That is actually one of the indicators that they use. Gary, how about you? What would you recommend if somebody wanted to implement this? I would say to be open-minded, that you're not going to be able to open up the book and be able to follow all the, you know, the exact way to implement Agile. And, you know, we found that out, at least here, that, you know, we have to uh, follow a lot of our, um, you know, mandated regulatory processes. So really, it's, it's not a recipe. It's a guideline. Right. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. And don't be afraid to kind of adjust things and make it work. Yeah, I was at a, a talk a week ago, and they had the Agile Manifesto uh, in a presentation. And somebody asked a question about, like, how can you follow that if you're in a regulated environment? You know, the documentation. Sometimes the manifesto, people will read into it that there is no documentation. You just do whatever yeah. you want to do. And that's not true. Whatever your industry is, you satisfy the minimum that you need to, and you go from there. Again, we partnered many years ago and started changing things up, looking at what we really needed and what didn't we really need. I think that some of the challenges also when you have developers or testers come in from a different field that doesn't require the oversight that, we, that at least our in, in industry requires from a regulatory standpoint. Um, so they've adopted Agile from where they came from. However, they didn't have to follow all the processes, and they use people over process as part of the manifesto, as, as that states, and says, well, why, why do we have to do this? So that was some of the challenges we had over the years, and training has really helped with that as well and, and showing what the importance of this, you know, why, why we have this. And Matt, you, you were involved in some of that training. Oh, so, yeah. um, you, you know, you actually helped us really educate the team on why it is important to have this stuff in place and, and how it's used. So people over process is part of that Agile manifesto, meaning we value the actual people doing the work over mm -hmm. what the process, and we can update the process. It's harder to update people than it is process. So you talked about team happiness on the Agile health, uh, health radar. Any other outputs from that then? Yeah, they're measured on five areas. The five are clarity, performance, leadership, as we talked a lot about, culture, talked a lot about that as well, and foundation. And it gives a good indicator of where you are. So you talked a little bit about the risk of failure being realized quicker. How do you measure risks, though, overall? So from a program standpoint, we use uh, what we call like the delivered risk model, um, which is presented weekly, and it's kind of a summary of what's going on with each individual project. And we looked at three areas, uh, scope, resources, and delivery. Uh, the overarching goal of that model is to identify and track the risks while, you know, there's still time to react and uh, before any of the effects become detrimental to the overall delivery of the project. So in short, this gives us enough time, or I should say early warning before the train comes off the tracks to, to react. This is a status that we deliver on a weekly basis to you know, our, our senior management and executive management team. So it's having all the right people involved as well that can uh, you know, uh, help us address 
any of these needs that need to transpire in order to keep these three areas on track. Um, you know, I, I talked, I, I mentioned scope, and, and I know a lot of people think waterfallish when they hear scope, but that just refers to the requirements and use cases that make up the project. So it references the release plan, and failure to lock down a scope is probably among one of the highest risks that we have, just because we could have a timeline that's affecting some client that needs a certain uh, feature or functionality that we need to deliver. The resources, you know, refers to really to the capacity of the staff assigned to the project. So uh, the resource risk can, you know, sometimes be unexpected. You know, if someone's sick on the team, any attrition among, amongst the staff. So capacity set up front during, like, iteration zero, it's rechecked underneath each uh, iteration planning session. So I want to take a moment to thank Dev and Gary for their time. It's not often we get to peek inside how a technical team functions during their daily activities. So this was really enlightening. The thing that really took me by surprise was the idea of letting the team fail. At first glance, it seems really counterintuitive, but in the end, it makes us stronger. I hope this helps put some understanding that Agile isn't the wild west of development, that there is actually a method to the approach. Linking back to my story at the beginning, I think it also goes to show how these two turned me into an Agile believer. Well. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Matt Lowry, and this is the Spotlight on IRT Podcast. You've been listening to the Spotlight on IRT Podcast, brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies. If you have a question for our host or would like to suggest a topic for our next podcast, please visit our podcast page on Almac Clinical University at university.almacgroup.com.